Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. About 10 years ago, I was uh, in Bodh Gaya in India, the place where the Buddha was enlightened. Uh, originally going there on a vacation and a kind of spiritual vacation with my uh, soon-to-be wife, then just uh, girlfriend, partner Jane. Uh, and a funny thing happened in Bodh Gaya. Uh, I became part of an entourage that uh, took robes. About seven of us uh, became monks for a short period of time, which is not uncommon in Theravadan tradition, where you just put on robes for a few weeks and, uh, and disrobe. Usually it's done about three times before a typical, uh, before you're 21, if you're a, uh, a Thai or a Burmese um, boy. Uh, and there's lots of stories I could share about those two weeks, but uh, one thing that I, I wanted to, to mention, which is part of the topic of the talk, it was quite an auspicious event. Uh, we didn't know what, what we were getting into, but elephants, we were going down the street with elephants, and the Dalai Lama was in town, and we did this under the Bodhi tree uh, while the Dalai Lama was talking to a thousands of Tibetans. He didn't know what was going on behind him, but there we were. This is a lot of things happened in Bodh Gaya at the same time. Um, but then we, we met him later on, uh, took precepts with this uh, uh, great Burmese master Tampulu Sayadaw. Uh, and we were visited by some of the, uh, the auspicious and uh, impressive luminaries uh, that were in town. Anyone who takes robes, there's, there's a, a sense of uh, uh, delight and uh, um, respect that comes with that, that act. There was this one Tibetan man who visited us, who was in robes, who came back to where we were staying and this man just bowed to everybody, kept on bowing, kept on bowing, with a, uh, an indescribable humbleness and power at the same time. This is, I, he didn't speak any English, at least to us, just kept on going, oh, you know, like, thank you, thank you, thank you for, for becoming monks, for taking this auspicious act. And there were lots of other people, but this guy really stood out. And finally, after he left, I, I said, kind of like the, the Lone Ranger, who was that masked man, you know, who was that guy? And somebody said, oh, that was Lama Yeshe, who is one of the um, most loved, beloved Tibetan teachers um, in, in our, my lifetime. He since passed away. Uh, maybe about six or seven years ago. But it really struck me, here was this man, I'd heard about him for quite a few years, Lama Yeshe, I've heard of Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa, they were kind of a, they traveled together, or Lama Zopa was a student of Lama Yeshe's, also quite um, highly respected. But it really struck me that here was this great Tibetan Lama whose practice seemed to be about paying respects. And here we were, these young whippersnapper Dharma students who just took robes for a few weeks and getting all this um, love and appreciation and respect. And I wanted to talk a bit tonight about these qualities of reverence and respect and devotion uh, as connected to our Dharma practice. The Tibetans are really strong on this, as you probably saw not only from the story, but last week, and if you've spent time with Tibetans, uh, how they chant and they invoke the spirit of, 
of the great deities, whether it's Padmasambhava, who's known as Guru Rinpoche, or um, Avalokiteshvara, or all the uh, all the the different deities in the Tibetan uh, cosmology. Devotion and reverence are essential for Tibetan teachings. Guru Rinpoche, Rinpoche, you've probably heard lots of Rinpoches, Trungpa Rinpoche, Tsogni Rinpoche, uh, Kalu Rinpoche, Duja Rinpoche. Rinpoche means precious jewel. Guru Rinpoche, who's Padmasambhava, uh, this is the man who brought Buddhism to Tibet. Uh, guru means, Guru is dark to light. So, someone who brings you from darkness to light. So, the precious jewel who brings you from darkness to light. There are um, many, many incantations and uh, invocations to the Guru as you practice Tibetan Buddhism. And I thought I'd, I'd read a little bit from one. This is uh, the prayer to Guru Rinpoche that swiftly removes obstacles and fulfills all wishes. O Guru Rinpoche, you are the compassion of all the Buddhas in one, our only unfailing and constant refuge. Quickly turn your love and attention to your sons and daughters and their prayers. Inspire us with your blessings, empowerments, and cities, powers, here and now. Although we know the example of your life, your qualities, and kindness, uh, your, li- your qualities and kindness surpass those of any other Buddha. Yet in happy times, Guru, we do not remember you, and our prayers are nothing more than so many meaningless words. Now when the dark ages intensifying decay oppresses us, and unwanted suffering strikes us without warning, then we remember you, our protector, deep within our hearts, turning your loving attention to this anguished plea of ours, our cry for help. Then it goes on and on and on. I'll just stop there. Uh, pretty demonstrative. Huh? When when Sokni talked last night, Sokni, uh, last week, Sokni Rinpoche was talking about Dzogchen and simply abiding in self-awareness, in in resting in the moment with the Dzogchen view, the natural state. One thing that he didn't talk about, which is that before one practices Dzogchen in the traditional Tibetan lineages, there is a very intense preliminary practice and preparation, what's called nundros, nundro preparation, 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantras, and you're supposed to keep track and do this over time. You know, you count on mala beads and you kind of chalk up your, your total. It's a running total. Uh, as a kind of practice in surrendering and devotion as you uh, say a mantra to, to the guru or prostrate to the Buddha, <coughs> And that when one completes that kind of preparation, when one is truly open, then being in the presence of somebody who has the, the understanding, the deep understanding, there is a, an openness, a receptivity to receive the energy that is being imparted to one. It's an actual transferring of energy I've spoken before about this. Maybe it was, it's been a while, but uh, this is not so strange as it would seem. We are constantly taking in energy from people around us. So if you really open yourself up, you know how open you might be sometimes when somebody puts a zinger of a remark into your heart, you know, you rotten, so-and-so. That energy can be transferred. Well, when somebody is deeply open through all of these practices, and there's an embodiment of deep wisdom and compassion sending in a ritualized form at times that, that power, 
it can be transferred, transmitted. This is what transmission is about. And somehow being attuned to that energy opens you up to experience what perhaps this man is experiencing or this woman. So that's in the Tibetan practice. You know, when I first was involved with Dharma teachings, it was in Tibetan community, although I wasn't doing Tibetan practices. It was in Naropa Institute in in Boulder, uh, where I went for five summers um, while they had other programs. They also had Vipassana uh, teachings. And all of it seemed so strange to me, just really weird. And all the bowing and all the invocations It just seemed a bit much. And what I really liked was the no frills, no surrender, the way that teachings had been presented to me in uh, the Vipassana tradition, Vipassana community. And in fact, in the Western sharing of these teachings and the traditions, there has been a real mm, low-key quality to the whole idea of devotion and um, surrender that has been very appealing for the most part, at least particularly in in the earlier years, to Westerners who are used to scrutinizing everything and saying, yeah, I don't know, I'll check it out for myself. Nobody's going to tell me. And so it was very, it was very appealing in that sense. The, the term for a teacher, as most of you know in, in this style of, of practice, is kalyanamita, or spiritual friend, so that rather than elevating someone to the position of guru, which can easily get into projection or identification, the person who's in that position, unless they have very deep wisdom, uh, that notion of spiritual friend seems a lot more accessible and safe to many people. Spiritual friend, a kind of co-traveler, And in that relationship, there's not a separating or putting on a pedestal. And it it can be very useful in developing one's own inner strength and confidence, not looking outside for all the answers. But perhaps in the attempt by the Western teachers to downplay that, perhaps probably as much for their own safety... I know that's been true for me. For years, I didn't even use the word teaching. It was more sharing the Dharma. It seemed to too close to identification of me doing something. Uh, It was dangerous to me. Uh, But sharing the Dharma seemed more compatible with this idea of of Kalyanamita, a spiritual friend. But in that attempt to downplay the sense of devotion, uh, we might have gone overboard in the whole quality of surrender and coming from the heart and inspiration that takes refuge in the teachings, not necessarily in the people doing the teachings. Not in the teacher, but in the, in the Dharma that that inspiration is very, very important. You can see how important it is to the, to the Tibetans. Very important in keeping the juices flowing, keeping the richness flowing, really putting your heart into practice. The power of that inspiration through whether it's reverence or devotion or surrender, it breaks through a sense of self to connect with some kind of higher power or something outside of yourself. And it brings a real warmth and heart and juice to the practice. 
you know sometimes perhaps how flat the practice can seem. And I'm not just talking about formal meditation practice, although that certainly goes through its, its flat times as well as its exciting times. But just living our life as practice, sometimes a lot is going on and it's just, wow, I'm learning so much each day. And other times it's, you know, oh, big deal. Didn't we have a, a day yesterday? You know, here's another one, you know. You know so what? You know, am I supposed to get jazzed up for this because I'm, I'm on a spiritual path? And it's really hard to get, to muster that up at times. When the practice is flat like that, where do we get our juice from? We give ourselves fully to something when we feel a strong emotional connection with it. That's just how things work. Whether it's singing, or your relationship, or your job, or social action, or politics, when you feel really strongly about something, you throw yourself into it, even if it gets you into trouble sometimes. Well, sometimes that's a bit lacking in our spiritual life. And if we can feel deeply about it, then that source of motivation and faith is there and it gets us through the dry and the gray times. When it's lacking, whether it's about spirituality or the rest of our life, we lose heart, there's apathy, there's frustration. I was thinking about this Uh, not so much in terms of uh, Dharma, but in terms of what's happening as you read the newspapers each day, one of the things that that strikes me is how devoid, it seems, our country is of some inspirational leadership. Have you noticed? (laughs) And it's not just leadership of we're the best, but some kind of moral leadership that, that touches us, that we can get, get behind. You, know, you look at the, uh, and I'm not just talking about the, the executive branch of the federal government, but on all levels of government, local, state, uh, legislative branches. Um, but you look at, if you've been reading these days about the Earth Summit, it's, it's an embarrassment to, to say, oh, this is what America's position is. And that lack of inspiration and, and moral <coughs> leadership, I think, is perhaps what's so, uh, so much the force behind Ross Perot's uh, ascendancy. People are looking for something that they can feel an emotional connection. And it seems like a lot of government now is just trying to sort out the chaos but doesn't have a real vision for what to do. And I think partly it's because of the, the, the spirit, the American spirit of independence, you know, I'll go it alone, that's the American way, where it's so hard to, uh, to give yourself up to, uh, to a power higher than yourself on an emotional heart connection. That, it, that all of that individualism that this country is so renowned for, it creates as well a kind of lack of connection. And there are lots of other reasons that we could say about the reason for that moral dearth, namely greed, hatred, and delusion, I guess, <laughs> in the big three. But you can see how the effect is when we're not inspired when we don't have a, a deep heart feeling about, uh, about what's going on. In the Theravadan tradition, I want to point out, and perhaps you've seen it when Ajahn Amaro has, has come here, that there's a deep tradition of this devotion and surrender and inspiration with humility being um, very much a part of practice. All the bowing, we don't see it here when you go to Asia or um, in England even, Ajahn Amaru or Ajahn Sumedho's uh, uh, monasteries, 
monks bow to uh, their seniors, lay people in Asia all the time. You bow to the to the to the monk or the or the nun when you're in front of them, and the chanting, all the chanting. And as you you heard, he uh, Ajahnamaro is leading some full moon chanting. All of that chanting is about evoking qualities of heart and appreciation and remembering um, how special and uh, inspiring the Dharma is. I want to read a little bit of some of the chants from, uh, from the Theravadan, some of the English translations. To the Blessed One, the Lord who fully attained perfect enlightenment, to the teaching which He expounded so well, and to the Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, to these, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, we render with offerings our rightful homage. It is well for us, Blessed One, that having attained liberation, you still had compassion for later generations. Deign to accept these simple offerings. For our long-lasting benefit and for the happiness it gives us, the Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one, the teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma, the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. This whole book is filled with that kind of reverence. As we do our uh, chanting here, and I haven't forgot that we'll do it uh, just after the loving kindness and, and finish as we said we did, we would uh, last time we talked about it. That Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sama Samputasa, homage to the Blessed One, perfect, perfectly enlightened. Uh, let me get the uh, exact translation. Yeah, homage to the Blessed, Noble, and Perfectly Enlightened One. <clears throat> this whole concept of going for refuge. And think of that, what that means, taking refuge, moving from a place of insecurity to a place of safety and sanctuary just by the act of declaring your appreciation and your um, intention to live up to the ideals and be inspired by the ideals of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I will just explain for people who are relatively new that that does not necessarily mean, at least in, in this culture, becoming a Buddhist. Although when you formally take refuge, what's called going for refuge, um, in many Buddhist traditions, that is a formal declaration of this being your highest priority. And so one can do that with the sense of becoming Buddhist. Um, but want to put in that you don't have to be a Buddhist to do this practice. You can take refuge in the Buddha as the embodiment of compassion and wisdom. You can take refuge in the Dharma as meaning taking refuge, feeling sanctuary in the truth, in reality, the, the natural unfolding of things. And you can take refuge in the Sangha, meaning not just people in robes, but all like-minded people who value uh, spiritual growth. But this going for refuge, there are a few different levels. I was reading a, a book by a, a Theravadan monk on going for refuge. It talks about four different levels of four kinds of devotion. The first level is that of homage, where there's a respect that we pay, a kind of uh, bowing is, a, is an expression of that, the chanting. There's an emotional quality that undercuts pride when you, when you bow and pay your respect and honor. A second level of going for refuge is that of declaring yourself a disciple of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And by that, it means that you have 
made a rational decision, not just an emotional one of, of surrender and respect and honoring, but you have thought this out and you are a disciple of those values. A third level of taking refuge is using the three refuges, what are called the three jewels at times, or the triple gem, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, using them as guiding ideals so that they inform all our external acts. Is this act honoring my refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha? So you are inspired by those ideals and, and put them at your highest priority, give you the vision with which you go through your life. And then the fourth, the deepest kind of taking of refuge is what is called the self-surrender, where it's not even you doing it, not you being taking the refuge in the Dharma, but it's more like in the Christian uh, phrase, not my will, but thy will, where you become the instrument of the Dharma or the instrument of God, if, you're, um, if you relate to other religious uh, forms, where the self of me being devoted to something else uh, drops away with the deepest understanding. So this is in the Theravadan tradition. And in almost every tradition, actually in, in most religious traditions, it's, it's a lot stronger, this quality of devotion. Christian prayer, really touching the heart and, and praying to God, opening the heart with a supplication. In Judaism, uh, devotion to God is, as if you've ever been in a synagogue and you see how how the, the, the people pray. There's this, what's called davening, going back and forth in a kind of supplication and uh, an openness, praying with all your heart, with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my might. Those are the words. On, on the holiest day in the Jewish tradition, Jewish religion, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we ask forgiveness for all the sins that we might have committed during the year. We lay ourselves open, bare, so that perhaps in Judgment Day we can, we can go to, uh, can be judged uh, properly, happily. Whether or not there's heaven in the Jewish tradition depends on who you speak to. <coughs> In sitting practice, also, we can bring that same kind of openness and reverence, whether or not we relate to any inspiring teacher or um, any particular form. For years, and uh, I had forgotten about this uh, Unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know which, but I had forgotten about for for years in my early years of practice, I would end each meditation with uh, a giving thanks, formally saying the refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and say it until I really felt it. It would be this moment where you just connect with the words. And then giving thanks to all my teachers, to spirit guides, which I was into at that time, and to all enlightened beings. And I had a whole list of them that I'd say. And it was so heartfelt that it was it really juiced me for the whole practice. And it's been a long time since I've done that. Um, we can do it at the beginning of a sitting as well. Just remember what we're doing here as we get into a posture of stillness. Why are we doing it? Is it to just take a break from the busyness of, of our life? Okay, I'll just be quiet and still and just let the whole show go. Which has its value. It certainly does, and I don't want to uh, undervalue that. 
But if we can take a moment to remember why we practice, just a moment, it doesn't have to be a hundred thousand prostrations, you know, or even twenty mantras, let alone a hundred thousand of them. Just a moment to say, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. Not even verbally making those sentences, although that can sometimes help. But as I've said many times on, on retreat, the end of retreats, that I sit, the act of sitting for me is paying my respects to the Dharma. Whatever happens, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's less clear, who knows what's going to happen. But in the very least, it's honoring the Dharma by taking some time to listen to it. I haven't gone through, as I said, for quite some time, a formal kind of statement of that. But that's what it means to me. And I just uh, invite you to think for a moment where you draw your inspiration from. Is there a place in your heart as you practice that is really moved more than just to quiet your mind down but to emotionally connect with what you're doing in practice. Is there a place, and I have a feeling there is for probably everybody here, if we can access it, is there a place that really calls out, that really yearns to understand and to open our hearts in a way that is very pure, that nobody knows but you and the Dharma, or you and God. Where do we draw our inspiration from? What can we willingly and consciously feel a devotion or a surrender to? And for everybody it might be different. There's no right or wrong in this. That's the beauty of it. We, it can be a flower. It can be a tree expressing life through it and just being touched by the beauty of life. It could be nature. It can be your idea of God. It can be Jesus. It can be the Buddha. It can be a teacher who inspires you. It can be your, your mother or your father if they, if they, were, if they held that place in your heart. But it's so helpful, I think, to remember that, to not get that flat space and and feel yourself plateauing there for ages. So just for a moment, before we open up to a discussion, which I'm interested in hearing uh, your thoughts on this, think for a moment what really touches and inspires you, what you can give your heart to in doing this practice that you might consciously reflect and, um, and deepen uh, as you sit or as you go through your spiritual life. Let's just take a moment here. And images are very helpful if you can bring them into your heart. Is there any being who, by their example or their, their faith in you, that touches you, that moves you? Any concept, any idea? That touches a, a place of authenticity and purity. What pulls you on to do all of this work? And if you can get in touch with something, what would it be like to regularly pay it homage and honor and respect it? and have gratitude 
what would it be like to make that part of your practice, developing that? And if it seems that it would be a useful thing to do, perhaps you can get in touch with a a decision or a commitment to give that some energy and practice. to let yourself feel emotionally connected to your spiritual life, more than just a fleeting thought or moment. So, let's have some discussion about any of this. Yes. James, something that struck me as I thought, just for my own self, uh, it might be interesting to hear people who feel like it, just talking about what it is that inspires them, just what you were just asking us to get in touch with. Mm-hmm. People who would like to, to share that, I think that would be... Uh, helpful for me and mm-hmm. Fine. Do you want to start? Uh, uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can tell you why, too. The reason that I, that I asked and is that uh, I, I don't feel that I have a sense of that within myself. Mm. I don't have a sense of some inspirational person or something <coughs> like that that motivates my practice. It, it's something that's much harder for me to get a handle on. And, uh, so I have a hard time doing that myself. Other than a person, is there anything in there that, that you ever get inspired or motivated by? Um, well, I think uh, I, I was really, well, I really don't think so. I really, I really, I mean, inspired and motivated. It, it's really, I mean, my practice, honestly, James, is more motivated by, uh, by hope and mm-hmm. by a sense of, I know there's something there, and if I'm just quiet enough, long enough, I'll just begin to observe what's really happening <clears throat> and get more in touch with that mm-hmm. without having any sense as to what is going to come of that. Mm-hmm. That's more the the driving force for me. What makes you know there's something there? Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't say for a fact that I know there's something there. Well, I, I have a sense that there's something there. What gives you that sense? There's a very peaceful feeling that comes over me in the quietness sometimes. And it has a special quality that I don't find other places. And, uh, that's one thing. Uh, Speak a bit more about the quality. It, it has a very alive aliveness to it. it it's, a, it's a heightened, <coughs> a heightened awareness of, <coughs> I guess, of perception of everything, of just being more aware of, of the moment. <coughs> Of you know the physical sensations, but much more than that, it just—it's very much a sense of presence and of the special quality of that. Mm -hmm. (coughs) That might be something to just. uh, There's a doorway there, I think, Mm -hmm. um, that maybe you can 
just explore a bit more. Because the what really touches me, and there are cer- certain inspiring beings that, that do, but deep down what really touches me is something that's not that far from what, what you're talking about. It's kind of, it, that's the kind of direction that I get very, very moved by. So I, I, I wouldn't just dismiss that, but keep on looking through in there. I guess the thing that motivates me to, to practice more than anything else to follow a spiritual path is just curiosity. Uh, quote, all those who have preserved the Dharma for us today and to thank the Buddha for finding and showing us the way. And then the last two things, uh, I just send some love to myself. You know, it's like it all okay. I don't have to succeed at getting any insight or anything. Just just make the effort. Just do it. Just sort of really calm it all out. With Just send some love to myself. And then the, the last one, the Zagato that Tignat Han made famous. Hmm. How long does that take? A minute? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's brief, you know. You just Really think about why you're sitting here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe maybe a minute and a half. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I never thought of it. But it's, yeah. it's you know. It sounds like it's time well spent. Whatever it is. <laughs> Definitely is consciousness altering. If I do it properly, you know. Mm-hmm. If I just you know, okay, I'm sitting here. Da, 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 da. No, mm-hmm. That doesn't do it. But to actually put the emphasis in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't take very long at all. But it. it really shuts down all the stuff that's going on to a much larger extent than just sitting down, closing my eyes, and getting my attention. I mean, I find if I don't go through it, and I just sit down and put my attention on the breath, I got no chance to follow it. (laughs) I'm just gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, too, if you you want. Yeah, but it seems like it's more useful to spend the time. When I know a better way to do it, mm-hmm. it seems like it's more useful to put in the effort. Mm-hmm. And then if it goes, well, mm-hmm. so it goes. But what you say, that was really, that's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. What, what you say is re- it's pointing to getting in touch with your intention and the sincerity that you bring to the, to the exercise. Uh, and it's, from my way of thinking, it really doesn't matter so much what happens within the meditation. Um, I mean, you do what you can do as best you can, but the but the sincerity that you bring to it is what what really opens opens us up. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. The most vigorous things that have moved me have also brought a lot of terror and anxiety with it to the point that um, a few things I can remember as sort of wrong way turning points. Like I remember um, coming to college and writing what I felt was a great paper and being really excited. Wow, I did that and being terrified by it and it was a turning away from writing for me for a long time. What was terrifying about it? The vigor of it, the, the, the strength of the emotional connection. Well, that's, uh, I think, a really useful thing to see, to understand. You're, you're not alone in that. We get this, the word awe can be used for awesome and awful, uh, and people are awed by God and afraid of, of God, you know, their concepts of God, or awed by the enormity of, of life and the power 
the power inside, and, and we're frightened by our powers as well. I'm just reading um, um, the Chronicles of Narnia with my, my son, um, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and Aslan, this lion, is, he's like, he's everything, you know, and, and the, the kids who are, who are so enamored of him, they're also terrified of him, although they know he's perfectly safe. He's just, it's so much, it's so intense. And I think that as you can see how you hold yourself back from fully experiencing, the more you can see that with, with awareness, the, the less you'll be subject to the fear. Just see the fear as your doorway to opening to, to new immensities. I think a lot of a lot of times the spiritual process or growth is about learning to hold more and more energy. It's frightening. People get, a, get afraid of being happy on retreats. People have a lot easier time with suffering, often, not everyone, but often, you know, they start feeling all this energy and they feel kind of almost blissed out and then it starts saying, hey, I think I'm going to take off here and uh, I might explode. And it can be so unnerving because you don't know quite if the system can contain it. Okay? And the process is keeping on breathing deeply and opening and seeing how the fear is, is limiting you in, what you're, in the capacity that you do have. So you're on the right track if you just keep using that as a doorway to opening more and more instead of cutting yourself off, being subject to it. When I started, I was very much, as Lee describes, I don't know what the experience is, but it was very um, an inquiry, and I was so interested. I mean, every breath is so interesting. And I didn't know really what the fruit of that would be. And um, I, an experience that happened in the ocean was sort of what happened in meditation after a while. I really love the ocean and looking at it. And one day I was swimming, and I said, well, God, you know, now I'm in this water that I'm always looking at. So what, what else can I find out about this water? And I started looking at the water and smelling it and listening to it and being in it the way I was in the breath. And my heart just opened to this water. Um, it, was, it was quite amazing. Um, it was like I thought I loved the ocean, but I found out how much I really love the ocean. Mm. And I think something like that has happened in meditation, and something that started from curiosity ha is sometimes now really motivated by love and is <coughs> finding love. And I think what really motivates me is that something in it works. and. Um, and it has, again, I don't know about love, I mean, it's just, I don't know why trying to accept something and making no judgments about it becomes so loving, except in my mind makes up the story that, that judgment about what's good or bad is so connected to the ego and so limiting, and to be in a state where you just let things be is a state of love. Um, but I, mostly I think it does something literally to the brain tracks. And yesterday, <laughs> yesterday I had um, a woman come and needed money to clean all of our books, which is like an eight-hour project that I do once a year if I bother. And when she left, I saw it was a disaster. <laughs> I mean, the poetry was mixing with the science, and it, some books were upside down, and it was just, I looked at it, and I just felt this drop of despair and overwhelm. And it's like a signal happens in my mind sometimes now of I've slipped into judgment, I've slipped into not liking this. And it, it's, I, I mean, it just comes from sitting and so many times going from not liking this to noting not liking this to opening to, to what's there. And just in that moment with these books, it was, I mean, really like a miracle. Yeah. That, that happened automatically in my mind. Yeah. 
And it was, I was just right there in reality, like the breath is reality, and those books were reality, and it wasn't good or bad, it was what was. Mm. And it was so bright and so open. I mean, you know, I don't want to make it dramatic, mm -hmm. but I, I just find it extraordinary. And I thought I was conditioning my mind, you know, not to be anxious, not to hit the breath anxiously. But I, I really think that we do something physically in there. Mm -hmm. It. Um, but that's what the conditioning is about. It's changing some way signals go through. Mm -hmm. And it's so yeah. easy because you don't even have to do it. <laughs> You're just going to do it itself. <laughs> I think, you know, what you say is, it's, it's interesting. I think that there's a natural, as you say, a natural byproduct of learning to open you know, so that you're not contracting. That does lead to, to that open-heartedness and love. And sometimes it can be a, a slow journey um, if you just rely on the mindfulness to do it. Some people get a very strong dose of it, and it it just opens their heart very deeply and profoundly. But, and what I'm saying is that for those who uh, don't have as access uh, as much access to it that you can consciously evoke that and and suffuse the, the mindfulness with that mm. as well it works works both ways yeah Gordon. Well, a different angle James uh, you know most of my <coughs> practice is engaged Buddhism and I'm sure I'm an engaged Buddhist because my parents were such wonderful engaged Christians uh, I don't think I could have been anything else. But I find what grabs me in this are opportunities that just get sent to me, uh, just serendipitously. And, and suddenly, there's something for me. Uh, and and um, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing grace. I don't connect that with my parents in any direct way, but I think indirectly uh, there's a deep connection. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful way to put it. Amazing grace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, last last one. Oh, no. um, I agree a lot with Judith that. That what inspires me is, is finally the experience, the reliability of this practice, or the process that we that I seem to be in, and I can forget it time and time again, and and then I will sit down and I'll go through something that will just remind me that that it works. There's something that opens me up mm -hmm. about it. I don't open myself up, but there's something about practice that opens me up and that if I can remember it that's inspiring to me but you know there's something else too and that is um, once quite a long time ago you asked a similar question here and I thought about it for a long long time and and I wanted to say then and I was too embarrassed to say it but I'm inspired by all of you people here. I mean, I'm inspired by Judith right now. I'm certainly inspired by you, James, I really, and Eric. I've been inspired many times by Eric and Patrick and Lee, and, and it's very inspiring to see um, the sincerity that people bring here to this group and, and your faces. And um, so, yes, I mean, that inspires me. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I want to say the same. I was just, who was I talking with? Uh, oh, it's a Siri Day Akar who's not here tonight. I was just speaking with her a few hours ago about, we were talking about the group, and I, I was saying how, how special it is. You know, it, it gives me a chance to, to dig down and be as real as I can be, uh, and it really comes out of people's sincerity. I think that's what he was talking about when the Buddha said taking refuge in the Sangha. It's like coming home, yeah. And feeling the support when you're 
when you're not quite there, just seeing other people's commitment. So, thank you. So, uh, let's do loving kindness, and, and we'll end with the uh, those chants. Uh, I have a few sheets, if if you'd like, We're, and we would just do the first, that Namo Tassa and the Buddhang Saranangachami, if if people want. There's a few. Just raise your hand if you. So we said we do that after the after the loving kindness, right? Okay. So, um, first for the loving-kindness, feel your heart, let yourself relax and breathe through your heart, a place that can touch and be touched, that's genuine and cares. Breathing through the heart center. A moment of forgiveness as a way to settle any business that's up in the air. If I've hurt someone or others through not seeing clearly, through my own confusion, I ask your forgiveness. And if anyone has caused me pain or suffering through their confusion, I forgive you. I forgive myself if I'm not ready to forgive others. I forgive myself for things I don't like to accept or have a hard time accepting. My anger, my judgment, my fear, my grasping, whatever it is for you, forgive yourself for that. This is how the heart opens. And then some thoughts of kindness to yourself. Get in touch with your sincerity that we've been talking about. You're part of that group, of this group that Margaret just pointed out. We've all brought something to it. And with that acknowledging of your sincerity, send yourself um, some love, some kindness. May I have happiness in my life. May I feel peace in my heart. May I grow in kindness and caring. May I be happy. And then extend that to everyone here. May all of us have happiness. May we all experience real peace in our lives. May we grow in kindness 
and in love. Then extending from this room to all beings in all directions, near and far, all over the planet, beyond. As I want happiness for myself, may all beings be happy. As I want peace for myself, may all beings find peace. May all beings grow in love and kindness. May all beings be happy. And now we can chant. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tasa This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on June 11, 1992. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.